It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef and they're 100%. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us this week. Have two guests for you, Adam Francis of Raptors HQ to talk Raptors, and Amin Elassan of ESPN to talk his fixes to the draft and playoff system, and what's going on in the league over a variety of topics. He and I actually talked for almost an hour and a half. And I wanted to start, though, with Adam Francis. He is the publisher of RaptorsHQ.com, and I feel like the Raptors are one of the more interesting and fun stories of the league this year, how they have dramatically outperformed expectations, but doing so with a new GM that may still be looking to make substantial changes to the team. So I wanted to have Adam on to talk about that and also to get a lay of the land before the deadline because there are a few teams that are going to have more interesting trade deadlines than the Raptors, whichever way it goes. So our conversation runs about 21 minutes. Hope you like it. Thanks so much, Adam, for coming on. No problem. Glad to be here. The Raptors have been a really interesting team to watch from the side because they went on this road that I think people expected them to, you know, kind of trudge along and have Masai Ujiri figure out what he wanted from the team and probably move a lot of pieces, cleaning house in a way. And the season has ended up going in a very different direction. And I was wondering if it's looked the same from somebody closer to the inside. Yeah, no, I think that's sort of a fair assessment of the way, you know, we viewed the, at least the start of the season, which was, you know, Masai was coming on board, and I think we we all sort of thought he wanted to get a lay of the land first. And he sort of said as much in the pressers prior to the season, because after sort of Rudy Gay's arrival, you know, we had a small sample size of games, and, you know, the team didn't, you know, they didn't win them all by any means, but there were some signs that potentially 
that lineup, at least that starting unit, units over a longer period of time potentially you know, could form a, a fairly solid nucleus. So how does that work over you know, a longer uh, series of games. So that was sort of the first piece of it. And indeed, that's what, you know, I think happened is Masai took a good look at what he had. But then, of course, the day trade comes and that sort of started phase two, shall we call it, of, you know, this season. And as you said, the Rudy Gay trade was phase two. Do you feel like the part of it of the addition by subtraction has been overstated, or do you think that's a part of it as well? Like, How do you see the overall effect of the trade on the current team? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely sort of the catalyst for the team's transformation into one that was instead of losing the majority of its games was you know winning more than they were losing anyway. And I think there's two parts to that. I think one is indeed the fact that there's the addition by subtraction, uh, Rudy Gay being traded, which had a sort of plethora of benefits from freeing up some usage for uh, you know more efficient players, helping with the offense so that the ball wasn't sticking, uh, providing some growth and development opportunities for someone like a Terrence Ross. So those pieces were all sort of built in as sort of your initial benefits, but the other benefits, which I think were sort of downplayed on uh, acquisition, was the additions of players like John Solomon, Bruce Vasquez, and Patrick Patterson. So these players came on board and suddenly... You know, I think the one player that people thought might have an impact is Grievous Vasquez. Just looked like a natural upgrade at the backup point guard spot, which had been a real struggle. DJ Augustine hadn't worked out. Some other guys like Dwight Bikes, Julian Stone certainly weren't locking the position up. So he looked like an immediate upgrade. But I think it's the other players that really have provided an even even bigger boost. Patrick Patterson, I mentioned, and John Salmon. So yeah, there's sort of two components to it. But I think indeed that was sort of the you know the turning point on the season. And one of the interesting storylines with this team, and obviously we don't know what they're going to look like a week or two from now after the trade deadline, but right now they have a lot of players, including most of the players that they acquired in the trade, who are expiring at the end of the season with Vasquez and Patterson being free agents. Do you have an expectation on where the team might go with those guys? I wouldn't be surprised if they, they try to retain Patterson especially. He's a player that the Raptors as an organization uh, took a close look at uh, when he was drafted. He came in and I watched him work out. He was a, you know, a player who was highly touted and I think probably would have been their pick had uh, Ed Davis not fallen into their laps. And I think he sort of lost in a shuffle a bit. Uh, when he was, you know, in Sacramento and after being drafted. He's right now in, in Toronto, anyway. He's playing a lot more like he did in Kentucky, where he showed that you know, he can stretch the floor, he's a fairly good rebounder, probably a little more mobile and a better defender than many people thought, and sort of an instant upgrade, you know, over a lot of the options that Toronto had. And he kind of represents a unique skill set, and I think, you know, for those reasons, that the Raptors will probably make some play at hanging on to him. Vasquez, I'm not so sure about. Um, I think he's probably the player that's been the most disappointing that, uh, of that trade, not because he's been awful, but he's been less of a pass-first option as perhaps was advertised. He's a little bit erratic, to say the least. Not a, not a great, hasn't shot the ball very well since he's arrived. So that one I'm not sure about, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if Patterson may make a play to hold on to. So one of the big stories with this team moving forward, particularly for the rest of this year, is where they want to go for the rest of this year in terms of adding or subtracting talent. And it's been speculated in a lot of places that they might actually be too good to benefit from, you could call it tanking, or from from weakening their core. Is that how you feel? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting situation, a very flummoxing situation, shall we say, because in many ways they find themselves in a similar situation as they were in Brian Colangelo's first year. He often alluded to the fact that he was sort of a victim of his own success, quote-unquote, you know, sort of in his latter years with the team, because if you recall, they brought in a bunch of players, a lot of players that were sort of unknowns too, and suddenly turned a team that no one was looking you know, at, at doing any sort of damage into a, a playoff team. They didn't get out of the first round, but they definitely you know, surprised a lot of folks. The problem was that a lot of those pieces weren't necessarily built for the long term, and as a result, you sort of had this short window of, I guess you'd say success, because they, they did make the playoffs, but you know, this wasn't a team that made the conference finals for you know, five years in a row. Right now, the Raptors are again in a situation where, yes, they're you know a couple games over 500, and it looks like they you know are definitely a playoff team. They're sitting in third currently in the East, but they're in a, in a conference right now that certainly isn't the most illustrious conf- Eastern Conference that's ever been fielded in NBA history. And are they you know in a similar situation where? Sure, they're in third, but I, I don't think anyone's mistaking them for a team that can knock off Miami or Indiana. They're probably you know a step below, if not two. So how do you get up to that next step? Because that's the you know ultimate goal, and you may need you know some additional talent to do that. Well, right now you're certainly you know not getting a top five lottery pick unless you certainly take the team apart. And there's all kinds of risks in, inherent with doing that, especially considering you're talking about from a PR perspective a club that hasn't made the playoffs in you know five plus seasons. So it's sort of a battle here, which direction to go, and I'm not sure really what the right answer is. The encouraging thing, I think, for those who think that the team is you know, potentially too successful right now and that they should be trying for an Andrew Williams or a Jabari Parker, I think the, the encouraging thing is that Messiah Jury has shown in Denver the ability to find solid talent later in the draft, whether it was Kenneth Reed or you know, trading for a Ty Lawson. So potentially, I mean, this, this draft does have some very interesting players after that top 7-8, so he can potentially you know, look at an Indiana model where he's building internally and finding value that's not necessarily in the top three or so. And they may have to go that route because he may not be able to get value for someone like a Kyle Lowry if they do decide to trade him. So there's a lot of different pieces, you know, in this puzzle and I and I think the bottom line is I, I don't envy Masai. Yeah, and the real question that's the case whenever there's a general manager, especially when to me when you bring in a talented one, is the idea that there's a new evaluation of every single player and coach that are involved in the organization. And so at least from my perspective, it seems unclear at the moment which pieces are going to be the building blocks and which pieces they want to parlay into other pieces that could be the building blocks. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's probably changed. I would just hazard a guess that um, when Masai came on board, I would say that he had a couple guys like Andrea Bargnani, Rudy Gay, and DeMar DeRozan circled as guys that potentially you know, would be finding new homes sooner rather than later, either because there was some and, you know, inherent value in moving them, or they just weren't living up to the size of their contracts. And if you recall, after the Rudy Gay trade happened, you know, the team was right up against the uh, luxury tax threshold. So, you know, you were pretty capped out and a, and a non-playoff team to boot. So there were a couple of those guys. Kyle Lowry potentially was in that uh, group too, both because of his contractual situation and the fact that last year obviously didn't go as planned. Jose Calderon ended up, you know, winning that starting point guard gig from him before before he was traded. 
But then Lowry sort of came out with gangbusters, and especially in the wake of the Rudy Gay trade, you know, I, I really feel he should be the all-star over DeMar DeRozan. But DeRozan has been great, too, and I've been one of the bigger critics of DeMar over the years, not because uh, he doesn't work hard, you know, everyone testified as to his, his worth, work ethic. I just wasn't sure he'd be able to take that next step defensively and rounding out his offensive game and being sort of that on-court leader. And, and he's definitely, you know, improved each season, but this year I really think he's taken an actual step forward, uh, a major step. I think in past years there were smaller incremental moves, but this year I think we've really seen him take a step forward. So suddenly you look at guys like that, and if you're Masai, it's not easy to find a shooting guard around the league with some of, you know, DeMar DeRozan's abilities, and his contract suddenly isn't as outrageous as, you know, it appeared when Brian Colangelo extended him. So a lot of those guys now may be your building blocks, and that's your earlier point, raises some questions as to what then do you do from here, because if you do need to get to the stage of an Indiana or a Miami, then either these guys have to keep developing and taking big steps, or you need to bring in a talent. And again, how do you do that? You either do it via trade, free agency, or the draft, and a couple of those don't look like great options right now. Yeah, and the one guy that we haven't talked about very much at this point is Jonas Valanciunas. And at, at least when I was looking at this team going into the season, he was the player who I was most intrigued by long term. How do you think he's performed this year? I think he's been fairly good. I don't think he's played as well as some people expected him to. I think a little bit of that is product of how the team played earlier in the season. The fact that really his usage was down and with Rudy Gay, he just wasn't nearly enough of a, a part of the offense. And Dwayne Casey didn't trust him, it felt like, especially late in games, you'd see other players getting minutes. I think he's been a lot better sort of over the last stretch of games. He still needs to do a lot of work in certain areas on defense. At times, even on offense, he'll get into situations where he'll either green a roll and he rolls, doesn't get the ball right away, and just kind of stands around. He's not sort of re-involving himself in the offense. This is all stuff that, you know, younger players, you know, will learn over time. I think he's still, you know, a very solid player and projects to be a, a good NBA player. I'm not sure if the ceiling, though, is quite as high as maybe some expected when he was first drafted. But a player that each season seems to, you know, get better in certain areas. So I don't think there's necessarily a concern, but I'm just not sure that he's had the gangbuster season that many expected. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have a feeling for whether Dwayne Casey is the right answer long-term for to be the head coach of the franchise? Oh, this is a great question, too. During the Rudy Gay time period, you know, it certainly looked like he wasn't, especially in terms of offense. There were some questionable decisions made, whether it was late-game situations like the fiasco in Charlotte earlier in the season or whether it was just, you know, rotational decisions. Interestingly, as soon as Rudy Gay left, a lot of those questions went away. Coaching in the NBA is a funny thing. To be honest, I'm, I'm not a huge, huge believer in coaching making a giant difference outside of certain guys like your Phil Jacksons, etc. I think a lot of it's the players you have on your team and the composition, etc. With that being said, do I think Dwayne Casey is the right man for the job? I think he's done a great job and I'd be fine, you know, to see him continue on. I have a feeling though that Messiah is going to go in a different direction at the end of the season. I'm not sure why, but I think that he will look elsewhere come end of season yet. Would George Carl, do you think he would make sense if theoretically that relationship was still intact to manage this team going forward? I think it would. I mean, I think that especially on offense, there'd be some merit in bringing someone like George 
Carl in, who's, who's quite creative in terms of offensive strategies. And that's probably been the biggest knock on Dwayne Casey from day one is his lack of, uh, you know, offensive playmaking and sort of the, especially on the creativity side. I'm not a huge George Carl fan, though, so I'm not sure that it makes a huge difference. Put it this way, I think if you put brought George Carl in, maybe you do see some improved offensive production. But I'm not sure that it's a difference between 42 and 45 wins and, you know, 55 wins. You know, maybe it's a win or two. I'd be curious to see if Masai actually goes in a different direction and, and looks at maybe a, a younger coach who has more of an analytical mind to things. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see which direction he goes. But, yeah, I, I get the feeling that Casey won't be the guy. And that makes sense. In pretty much every major sport, you see that a general manager, because they're tied at the hip so much to the coach, that they want to put in their own person when they get the job. And Casey has not, is not that guy because he was already there. So that could be a factor in it as well. Yeah, I know, absolutely. I think that's definitely the first factor, and you know, the one that sort of reared its head immediately when, when Masai was uh, you know, made GM. So that, and, you know, I think that some of it will probably naturally come to, to rest on how the rest of the season unfolds. And it could be, it'll be interesting one way or another because, you know, I made it, I alluded to that first season of Brian Colangelo's. And the other parallel is that Sam Mitchell was in charge. It looked like he was going to have to go and then he wins coach of the year and it's extended. So not that Dwayne Casey necessarily will win coach of the year, but again, a situation where someone who looked like potentially a, a, a coach on the chopping block has a team that, uh, you know, maybe someone say overachieved. So do they keep him on because of that? And that also goes into the point that you brought up before, that a lot of that goes to the talent on the floor more than the coach. And you can get into situations, I think, what just happened with Mo Cheeks in Detroit is an interesting example of that, where you, if you put a coach in a tough spot, they're going to look bad. And if you put them in a good spot, they're going to look great. There's a lot of gray area, you know. I think I think that you're on the point. I think there are certain coaches that are big positives, and there are very few of them. Maybe Thibodeau, Popovich, obviously maybe Spolstra, and then there are a few that are big negatives, and I'm not going to name names, but everybody else is right around in the middle, and so the logic, it's interesting, would be if you can't get a guy that's in that top tier, then maybe you're all right with a guy in the middle. Yeah. No, in fact, it's so, so good that you mentioned those names, because in fact, when I was giving my answer, I was thinking of the Maurice Cheek situation, where that's exactly it. I don't think Mo Cheeks is the right coach for a situation that requires that sort of creativity. But in turn, you're putting him in a position to fail when you're combining those players. And I think one of my favorite examples of bad coach, oh, wait a minute, no, great coach, Doc Rivers, pre-Kevin Garnett and uh, Ray Allen with the Celtics, when he was lambasted by so many individuals in the media for that Celtics team. And then as soon as he was infused with some real talent, everyone was praising his, you know, the merits of, of Doc Rivers. And I think, I just think the talent's the bigger part of the equation, except for those, you know, those rare sort of outlier cases like Popovich and uh, Thibodeau and some of the names you mentioned. So exactly. I think the, the focus for Masai should be more on, yeah, how to, you know, building the team. And, you know, if we can't get one of those outlying coaches, then are we happy with a Dwayne Casey? And he's done a solid job. And until one of those guys that, you know, maybe are on his short list become available, then you focus on building the team that you think, regardless of the coach, is going to be a very competitive basketball club. 
Okay, this is going to be a two-part question that I think is going to, both parts are going to be hard for you. Okay. First part, they're both about Kyle Lowry. Okay. Do you think that he'll be a Raptor on March 1st, and do you think that he'll be a Raptor on October 1st? I think he will on March 1st. I think there's two factors at play. One, I think that the team wants to, I think they could feel like they can re-sign him. So I think they hold on to him for that reason. I also think there's just, if you look at sort of the strictly economics view, I just don't think the demand side is there, the equation. There's been a number of really good articles just talking about how there aren't a lot of teams in a position to give up, A, the assets that Toronto's probably looking for, or B, that need a point guard like Kyle Lowry that you know they can either afford or, or make work in terms of a, a trade salary-wise. So I think March he'll be there, and I actually think he, that he will be there come start of next season too. I do think actually that he'll re-sign with the Raptors and I don't know, call it a a Dustin, but I think, and part of that is is the same sort of rationale. I just think that the market dictates that Toronto's probably his best situation. And on Terrence Ross, is the it seems like he's improved since the gay trade. Obviously his role has changed dramatically. Do you feel like it's more of the situation that we see so often with young players that they're just getting the opportunity to show, and so it's more just getting the time. Or has he actually grown, or has the change in role made him a materially better player? I'm going to go with the former for right now. You know, the 51-point the explosion was, was terrific, but I haven't seen enough to say that he's taken a next step yet. There's been some nice moments, but there's still, you know, equally as many that, you know, make you scratch your head or, or look up at the ceiling in frustration. And, and that's natural for a young player. I think it's going to take some more time in terms of evaluating whether he is, a, you know, a, a cornerstone, or not cornerstone, but a, a building block for the team, you know, long term. He's still not the player that I expected him to be out of college. Not that in college he was an amazing player and suddenly is, you know, has regressed, but I think sort of watching him play in college and even talking to the Washington uh, coaching staff after he was drafted, I think I got the, uh, just a sense that he was going to be a more aggressive offensive player and maybe it was because he was sort of you know behind Rudy Gay and some other options early on and we're just seeing uh, more aggressiveness of late but I think he still needs to work on a number of aspects the three-point shot you know we know he's got the ability to hit that and you know when he can do it consistently he's a major weapon but he doesn't have much mid-range game to speak of yes he's certainly not an off the, the dribble player so his offensive game is a little more limited than I thought it might be even at this early stage and to be honest you know a lot of the time shooting guards by year three sort of you get a pretty good idea of what kind of NBA player they're going to be so we'll see I mean he's perhaps a little regressed because he hasn't played a ton until you know this, this past couple months so we'll see if this is just a case of you know, he's maybe a bit behind the curve, but I'm not completely sold on him yet, which is too bad because I, I was pretty, you know, I was fine with him being drafted where he was drafted. It's just I haven't seen the fruits of that yet. So it's going to take some time to sort of fully evaluate whether he's sort of a, a Morris Peterson or potentially a, a Jason Richardson type. Yeah, that's, and that's a reasonable take, and it does take time. I think that your point that you start to see things by year three is a good point, but you it takes a while to get the full sense of the player, and it'll be fun to see how he works out. But I'll let you go on your gut feeling on whether this Raptors team wins the Atlantic and what that means in terms of their spot in the Eastern Conference. Yes, I think they win the Atlantic Division, and I think they finish third in the East, actually. I think they'll edge out Atlanta, and they'll sort of sit in that in that spot. And what that means, 
after that is a great question. I mean, I think they have the ability to win a round of the playoffs just because I look at some of the other teams that they're likely going to be competing against, and I, I see no reason why they can't, you know, barring some crazy injuries, you know, definitely win a round. And, and beyond that, though, I, I think they're, they're they'd be in over their head in, in a seven-game series against Indiana or, or Miami. But, you know, it's it's an encouraging – it would be a very encouraging season, you know, if they finish with plus 500 record winning that Titanic division and not just getting to the playoffs but winning around. You know, it's only happened once before in franchise history. So there will be a lot of happy Raptors fans and, and Maple Leaf sports executives if that's the case. And the Raptors are in this really fun situation for fans also, perilous, because – they're going to be really fascinating to watch the rest of this season, and also they might have the single most interesting offseason that doesn't involve LeBron James. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure having you on, and hope to have you on soon. Absolutely. That was great. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Adam Francis for coming on. You can read him at raptorshq.com, where he's a publisher, and you can also follow him on Twitter at raptorshq. That's R-A-P-T-O-R-S. HQ. Next up is Amin Elsan of ESPN. I was really excited to have him on, and our conversation runs a little longer than normal. It's an hour 25, and a lot of that comes into play because we talked on his drive back to Arizona from covering three sporting events in LA over the weekend, and he talks about that. So we get into a wide variety of topics from his idea to tweak the draft and the playoffs to make it better to specific players and teams that are over or underrated, the prospects of the Suns, the, what the Cavaliers are doing and what they should do, and a lot of other topics. I really love the conversation, really happy with it. As I said, it runs about an hour 25. Hope you enjoy it. Well, okay. thanks so much, Jumeen, for coming on. Hey, no problem. I'm glad to be on. A couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast on different people's solutions or tweaks to the draft system, and I know that you wanted to talk about what you'd like to do, so I'd want to start there. Yeah, I'm sure it probably sounds pretty familiar to some of the other radical options out there. The most radical option for me, but would probably be best, is if we do away with the draft altogether, and instead of having a draft, we have kind of like a rookie free agency period that occurred before the regular free agency that we have in the beginning of July. And basically, instead of draft picks, every team would get a draft slot. So it would be like a rookie salary exception. It could be the same amount that the current rookie scale picks go in. So, you know, the number one overall pick would get a $5 million salary exception. And then the, the next pick would get four and a half and so on and so forth. So the bottom of the first round, you'd be getting something like $900,000 or $800,000. And the idea here is that instead of, you know, I'm the uh, Philadelphia 76ers that have the worst record, I can pick Jabari Parker and he has to come to my team. Rather, I have to convince him to accept my offer of $5 million. So Jabari Parker has a little bit more say in where he ends up as a player. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have to go to the team. I think him, he can choose to take less money and go to uh, what might be a better situation. So let's see. So uh, Orlando is an up-and-coming team that's also similarly bad. He might take the discount and go, you know, the slight discount and go play in Orlando or Utah or wherever or, or the Lakers. So the number one pushback you get with an idea like this is, oh, and then everyone's going to go want to sign with the Heat. Well, not necessarily. 
if you're a kid and you haven't made any money in your life and you can either take $5 million to play for the Sixers or 900 k to play for the Heat, and mind you, you're only going to get two years guaranteed and the third year is a team option, fourth year is a team option. That's a really big gamble to take for someone who's never made you know, any real money in their life. So I think that protects the system from players gravitating towards teams that are already really good. But ultimately what this system does is it forces a team to have to make itself look attractive to a player. And yes, obviously you're aided a little bit by being able to pay him more than teams with better records. But you're still having to show, look, we, we, we did a good job here. We're building towards something. We have a bright future. As opposed to if we look at teams like uh, well, the Cleveland Cavaliers, I guess would be the best example, kind of mismanaged. You know, uh, if you think about them having the number one overall pick, if it were a draft slot system, would Anthony Bennett have accepted going there? Maybe not. Maybe he said, ah, I'd rather go to Orlando or I'd rather go somewhere else than to have to do that. Similarly, the team in this draft, so the 2013 draft was really weak. So maybe the Cavs would have said, well, we have this $5 million exception. Maybe we don't want to spend it all on one guy. Maybe there are two guys that we can offer two and a half apiece, and we're better off doing that. So it gives also the team a little bit more flexibility as far as how they want to approach building with the young players. So that's a kind of rambling answer, and it's all over the place. But I really think there's a framework there that can really help bring about more conscientious general managing a team rather than this thing where we are judged kind of by opposite standards. You know, the worse the team is, now we're all applauding guys like Sam Hinkie and Rob Hennigan. Well, what if we put the incentive on them to have to make the team look attractive? I'm not saying they have to win 60 games, but they got to make themselves attractive to even stand a chance of getting a Jabari Parker and Andrew Wiggins or whoever. The other thing I'd like to add is, the nice thing about keeping this kind of draft slot, salary slot thing is you can still trade futures. So I can trade my 2015 first-round draft salary slot for a player now. So basically, if I'm the Clippers and I trade it to uh, the Celtics. In 2015, the Celtics would have their draft salary slot, which is, let's say, 18, so it's about $2 million. And then they might have the 27th draft salary slot, so they have another salary exception of about you know, a million or whatever it is. What's really interesting between, because you and I have similar ideas that have different executions. And so one of the clarifying questions I had was, in the case of the Sixers, would they be allowed to use cap space to sign players who had never played in the NBA? Yes, yes. So that, again, encourages proper cap management. So much like if a player goes undrafted in the draft now, he can sign, technically he can sign a max deal for a player with zero to six years of experience. Now, obviously, that situation never comes up because if he's that good, he would have gotten drafted. So similarly, in my system, you could use your cap space to go out and sign a guy who hadn't agreed to terms with anyone else during rookie free agency. So if your rookie free agency lasts the last three weeks of June or two weeks or whatever you want to call it, if he decides to sit out those entire two, three weeks in order to get a bigger deal, free agency, he's free to do that. Obviously, he's playing with the risk there because in any given year, the number of teams that will have a lot of cap space are going to be limited and you want to take them guaranteed. At the end of the day, also, there's the risk of injury. There's all types of risks that the player would be taking by passing up a guaranteed deal now for a bigger deal later. It'd be interesting if you worked that system with the idea that if you didn't use your exception during that window, then you lost it because then you'd be dealing with an evaporating market of space in certain circumstances. 
Absolutely. So yeah. So this is a use it or lose it. If you don't use it towards a rookie, you know, rookie free agent, I guess is what we call him, you lose it. Much like if you went into the draft and you had the seventeenth overall pick, and I think we've seen this in the NFL before. You you come up on the clock and it's your turn, and they didn't make a you lose that pick. It's not like well, can we use it later this summer? Can we use it next year? No, it's meant only for that time period, which is those two or three weeks, like I said, of rookie free agency. That's when you can use it, and if you don't use it by then, you lose it. It's nice because it's not going to be a cap hold or anything that's counted against you. Your idea is that you would basically, you would set the base salary or whatever, and then the the form of the contract would be similar to the current one, which owners would be more responsive to because they're not losing out in the same way. They aren't, they aren't risking long contracts or anything like that if it's within that system. Right. In some aspects, it's exactly the same as a draft. The only difference is you don't have a unilateral ability to say you're playing for me, kid, or you're not playing in the NBA, which right now can happen. So taking out that kind of power of being able to dictate who plays where is just basically the same system, but now you kind of have to woo and convince and recruit guys, but you still have the same parameters of a rookie-scale contract. You have two guaranteed years, you have two team options, and you got to pick up the option by October 31st of the prior year, and by the end, after three years, you're eligible for rookie All that stuff stays the same. The only difference is, as I said, you have to kind of prove yourself to the player that, you know, this is the worthwhile destination for them. And also, it puts the ball in their court. You know, if a player wants to take less money, that's fair. You know, if they want to do that and to go to the right situation, at least it's their choice. It's not something outside of that. It just seems more fair to me. Right, and I think that the interesting thing is, like I said, when you're dealing with guys who've never made money before, well, unless they played in the SEC, or at Oklahoma that, State, or, or Oklahoma State, well, they didn't have money; they, they just had other benefits, right? <laughs> <laughs> For most of these kids, they really haven't made any money, so to kind of change my life, take care of my family for the rest of their lives, money. So asking them to take a two or three million dollar pay cut per year, mind you, is pretty much almost out of the question in 99% of the situation, right? Maybe Austin Rivers is the kind of guy that could have said, oh, no, I'll take less to play for my dad. But other than that, right, everybody else, they're, they're, they're taking the most money. But what will yeah. happen is we'll see guys maybe instead of taking that 2 or $3 million, we're looking at 100 k you know, something like that. So someone, you know, like the year Charlotte had the worst record and they were trying to get uh, Anthony Davis. Maybe that's the kind of year where Anthony Davis says, you know what, I'll take 200 k less to go play in New Orleans rather than play in Charlotte because I think New Orleans looks like a better run, a better situation for me. Or if you look at it uh, like uh, uh, Deion Waiters in Cleveland, uh, he might say, you know what, I know this is a great situation as far as being picked high, higher than I was predicted, but I don't see myself fitting very well with Kyrie Irving. We both need the ball. That's not really what um, what they need. Maybe Golden State's a better situation for me, where they, you know, they have a need for someone who who can create off the dribble. And you know, again, I'll take 150k less or 300k less to go there because I think I'll have a better career. Anthony Bennett, I think, is the prime example of this. He's a guy that. You know, if he's honest with himself and he's like, look, I'm a power forward. You got a power forward over there. It's not going to work out, I don't think. Let me go somewhere where I can I can play my natural position and I don't have to fight someone who's barely a year older than I am. And, oh, by the way, he's my national team teammate. So 
it just it just uh, removes a lot of the awkward situations that arise from uh, the weird kind of draft strategy teams take. It would also fix, depending on how you administered it, one of the other big injustices to me, which is the way that international players' rights get held for such a long time, and so the exclusive negotiating rights leads to all these weird circumstances with guys. If you opened it up a little bit, I think you'd have the best players coming to the NBA sooner, which would help the product. Absolutely, absolutely. So, again, it gives you, it gives them a lot more flexibility than that. The other thing it, it does, and I was trying to remember this whole time, so what did I forget? is it really addresses the tanking thing. So more than, oh, you know, I know we talked about control and, and having to run your team the right way in order to woo these players, but it's a very real deterrent from, let me just be as bad as possible so I can have as many ping pong balls as I can. Now, you could argue, oh, but you're still getting a bigger salary exception by being bad, and this is true, but the main idea here is that alone is not a guarantee. So there, there has to be some skill that the GM has to employ, whether it's cap management, whether it's building a foundation and a culture that looks like it's something that people want to be a part of, or whether it's just plain old having people skills and being able to sit down with a, a player and an agent and convince them, this is the right place for you and nowhere else. Nowhere that can pay you more, nowhere that can pay you less, or, you know, we are the right situation. Uh, you know, Henry Abbott always used, used to write and talk about this. Is that how can you tell a bad GM from a good GM in the current system? The bad GM makes awful decisions every year, and he keeps getting high picks. Well, he can always just fall, oh, we meant to do that. Yeah, we were trying to, we were angling, you know, for uh, a better pick and, and play our young guys and all that. Well, you, now you can't hide behind that excuse anymore because a kid can look you in the eye and say, you guys have been bad for a very long time. What makes me think? Why should I believe that anything is going to be different? Even if I come, even as I have complete confidence in myself, I don't believe in anything else that's going on in that situation. And also, in terms of the business that you and I are both in, it would be huge in terms of buzz for the league because not only would you have this extended period, which would be more like July 1st when all the NBA buzz is huge, it would also be this really fascinating situation for agents in terms of those narrow circumstances where a guy might be so good that you'd want to sit him out of the first stage. So maybe you'd be sitting there and you're Joel Embiid's agent and Joel Embiid and you say, I think I can make more than $5 million. So, Or maybe I can, maybe there's a team that with cap space that has, you know, maybe they're at $3 million, but they have cap space. And that whole circumstance would be amazing. And as long as you opened it up at the right time, it wouldn't be tampering at all. It'd just be a different kind of negotiation. Right. And, and, and again, you know, that, that's the part that where the you got to work out the course, right? So as with any system, there are always going to be little loopholes and flaws. And that's something I thought about, whether you, you make it so that even if they make it to July 1, they still have to find a rookie scale-esque structure. So I might be able to find for more in July 1st, but I, I still have to sign two years guaranteed and then third year team option, fourth year team option, or something like that. Unless... That's the part that really needs multiple minds really thinking about what the best strategy is as far as handling those kind of situations. But again, I think that's still better than what we have now. Exactly. One proposal that I worked out that I thought would be more fair, and this gets into CBA Nerdland a little bit, is that I think they should unify first-year contracts with everybody else in the sense that I would like it if they could tweak the system so that if the fourth option year was picked up, a player would be unrestricted, but they would be able to turn down the fourth year and make them a full restricted. 
So it would make it a little bit more similar to what what Chandler Parsons is going to be going through. But so if a team wants to make sure that they retain a guy, the player gets another year to higher salary, but I totally understand why the owners wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, no, the whole point is I've invested time and energy and money on this player. I should have the ability to have some sort of leverage as far as keeping him. I I don't blame him. You know, when you think about a guy like Chandler Parsons and Lance Stevenson, yeah, they've been underpaid for four years, probably more so than anybody else in their draft class. But at the same time, it's a little unfair, right? You know, if you're a Rockets, you were smart enough to see these, or you're the Patriots, you guys are smart enough to see these kids for what they were when nobody else did. You put your your money where your mouth is as far as giving them the extra year and all that. It's kind of sad that because you gave the kid an extra year and the next year is worth the money now, now that comes back to bite you. But that's not something that I'm too worried about. I think the current rules, the way it works right now, are okay. And if you're signing a second-round guy, Signing them to a four-year deal really isn't in your best interest. You you got to have the three years and, and be able to uh, keep them as a restricted free agent. And as you brought up Lance Stevenson, which is a great example, it would have been really interesting to see what the market would have been for him as a restricted free agent in 2013, considering the all of the issues related with with all this stuff. I think it would have been much more likely that he would have gotten both a lower value deal and that he almost definitely would have stayed with the Pacers. Right, exactly, because he played well last year, and he, and he really took a, a giant leap forward last year, so it's nowhere near what he's done this year. It would have been it would have been really nice for the Patriots. I mean, who knows? They would have, maybe they would have been able to keep Danny Granger as well. Maybe they could have kept this four together for years to come. I mean, and, and by the way, this is the part of the game that really appeals to me. It appeals to me when I work for the team, and it still appeals to me now as a media member. The chess moves, how do I set things up three, four, or five years down the road so that I can maximize the talent that I have on my roster? Because the more we kind of remove it, that's why, you know, uh, when, when Zach Lowe wrote about the wheel suggestion, I was really against it because it just smacked too much of, paint by numbers to me. And if you take away that kind of intellectual exercise, then what, what's the point of the job? Same thing for uh, uh, people who want to get rid of draft protection as far as when you trade picks. And quite the opposite. This is what I love to do. I love finding ways to word these uh, transactions and basically making educated bets. I bet that you're going to be awful five years from now. And we'll never see that pick until it's unprotected five years now. Or I'll take the, le- the less favorable of you and Denver because I think you're both going to be terrible in three years. Uh, I love that, that kind of creativity and some, some knowledge. I think the only people that don't like it are media people because when we're writing the piece, we're trying to figure out, wait, now, now whose pick is this again? It can be a little bit of a pain to kind of play, uh, trace the, the, the money trail or whatever. But I, I, again, that's the kind of stuff that, that appeals to me. I love that stuff, too. The only argument that I see against pick protections, and the reason that I'm not a huge fan of it, is that I covered the Golden State Warriors the year that they had the situation with the Harrison Barnes pick, that I believe it had top seven protection. Yeah. And they deliberately sabotaged their team to make sure that they could get down there once they realized that guaranteeing they were going to make the playoffs wasn't going to work out. And so it led to this weird competitive imbalance because the teams that played them at the beginning of the year when they were trying to win got them and they had players who could have played, but were sitting for specious reasons. And that, I think, if you were designing a system, I would prefer one that didn't have that factor in it. And there are a bunch of different ways to fix that. 
but but again, I think I think that that goes back to I don't know if anyone would want that kind of long-term perception to their organization. Again, I have to convince people there's no guarantee that people will come play for me in the form of a draft pick. So now I have to convince people, whether it's the rookies or regular free agents, that we are a really good franchise that's curious about winning. When you, when you uh, raise the importance of that, it lessens the risk. And again, none of these solutions are ever going to be foolproof, but I, I think we can make it so that if you want to go down this road, it's not in your best interest, as opposed to now it is totally in your best interest. There are some less radical suggestions that I've heard and I've spoken with people about and I, I like as well, you know, while we're on the topic. So one of them is yeah. tying the, I can't remember who told me this one, tying the revenue sharing to where you finish. So we keep everything the same, but then now there's a very real cost to being bad. And so if I'm an owner and we can either tank it and get the 11th or 10th pick or try our very best and maybe get 13th or 14th, but now I get a lot more, I get a larger share. Then that, then again, it makes it a very real dilemma for a team. Instead of just being a no-brainer, oh yeah, let me just lose and get the best possible pick. Like, whoa, well if we lose, there's a very real cost that we're dealing with. That's one. The other one is going back to the there is no lottery. If you're one of the teams that missed the playoffs, you have an equal shot at winning, a, you know, a top three pick. And again, what that does is whether I'm the best lottery team or the worst lottery team it doesn't matter so i might as well try to win games right so you know those are, those i think are a lot easier to implement a lot more familiar for fans and for owners alike but I, you know I, they still obviously all have their same kind of flaws yeah and i mean if you're going to stay within the draft system there are other options that are out there one that i've written about previously if you're going to keep the draft system would be that i would love to see a tournament of the teams that didn't make the playoffs, seeding it so that the worst teams had the higher seeds so they would avoid games because you would have to have buys because it's 14 teams. And that the winning team in that tournament, the players on the team got a bunch of money, which you could sell the rights to it, and then the you would generate that money. And then the winning team gets the number one pick, losing team gets nothing special. The other idea that I really like, and there are a bunch of different ideas involving it, would be either a bid system where you can bid for the picks or where you can trade ping pong balls, literally. So each team has the same number or differing numbers and you can trade those like you could trade other assets. Right. The tournament, the problem I think, and most of us agree, probably play too many games as it is. Our players are worn down, back-to-back, all these things. It's just killing, killing, killing uh, guys. Um, I guess, you know, playoff teams play extra games as well, but I don't know if if guys can sufficiently, you know, keep it up year in and year out all over the league. Especially when you consider, hey, guys, what are we playing for again? Oh, yeah, some guy that's going to come take my job. You uh, start to approach kind of conflict of interest between player and team uh, on that matter. So, yeah, I'm hesitant about that one. The good system I've heard also, that's one has a very real danger of someone with deep pockets like the Brooklyn Nets just going in and just buying up things. I think you'd have to have some sort of cap, you know, how much you can bid or how many times you can bid or something like that. There's got to be some sort of artificial mechanism that just prevents rich teams from being able to just go all wild, you know, go basically on a shopping spree. And and then uh, trading the ping pong balls, well, explain that one to me because I haven't heard that one before. So my this is actually my personal solution, if we're going to keep the draft system, which I don't support, would be the idea that 
everybody gets 10 ping pong balls per year. And then you can apportion them however you want within your year. I would say that you were required to use at least one. And then you are allowed to within certain parameters, basically meaning that you have to keep one. You could trade those just like anything else. So let's say every team starts with 10. And let's say it's a year that, and I would say that you do it in firm five-year windows, meaning that you can't trade outside of that. You can't hold them over. It's not like rollover minutes where you can just keep doing it. It'd be a set window. And then what you could do then, the, the really interesting part of it would be that, so let's say you thought it was a bad draft, say 2013, and you decided you only wanted to use three ping pong balls. And let's say a lot of teams did that. Then one team putting in a couple more, would have a much better chance of getting somebody who they really liked. And if you could trade them, then you could do it's, – it's kind of, for right. me, it's a way of getting the creativity that you and I both like in right. an ideal system within the flawed parameters of a draft. Like, that's kind of the thing is you – I think that everybody who likes the draft can support the idea that you want better GMs and better situations to somehow be able to get to the top if right. they're creative enough. And in the current system, it happens more often with luck, like what happened with the Baron Davis trade that ended up getting Kyrie Irving to the Cavs. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that that's, that's exactly the spirit. The spirit in all these ideas, and if you're a fan, you're like, why are these guys trying to change everything? I think the spirit is all the same. The spirit is, if you're a smart GM, you should benefit from that. If you're a smart creative, if you've got a good basketball mind and a good strategic mind, you should be able to differentiate yourself from everybody else. And right now, that's not the biggest, the best strategic move for a smart GM is to put together an awful team. And that's just not, it's not very appealing. And the other factor in all of this, and I've heard a lot of smart people say this, is that changing the system to what you proposed and something similar to what I proposed is that every player who thinks that they're good enough to make it in the league should be more focused on their second contract and, more importantly, even their third contract than their first one. If they're smart and they look for the solution that they think will give them the best place to be a jumping-off point for their next contract, then you're forcing GMs to do a much better job building their teams. Because if you just make the cupboards bare, you're gonna, you could still convince you know, a guy to come with your number one draft slot, but you're going to have to be a whole lot better at that part of your job. Whereas if you're doing a good job in building and you have guys that other people are going to want to play with, then you're doing that work all season long. Right. And again, I think this is something that goes back to if you're an owner, it's a lot easier to judge a GM now. So if you're Tom Gore, the uh, managing partner of the Detroit Pistons, and Joe Dumas doesn't have the, oh, I drafted Andre Drummond and, and Greg Monroe to fall back on, Instead, he has to actually have to try to convince these guys to come play for him. And it's really tough. It's tough to justify Joe Dumas' tenure. Because then it just turns into, yeah, that's a guy that fires coaches and spends money unwisely. And, oh, yeah, when it comes to draft free agency, you couldn't convince anybody to come play. And there's also the situation, Dumars is a really good example. I like that you picked him because the two guys that he drafted best, Drummond and Monroe, both fell into his lap because other teams made mistakes. Obviously, they did a great job drafting them, and and the fact that they took them when they were available is great. But both of those guys fell, in a way you could say, unnecessarily past teams that did a bad job. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun how you can look at a glass half full or half empty? So we praise like teams like the Pacers for drafting Paul George and uh, and Roy Hibbert and Danny Granger with either low lottery or middle of the round picks. But at the same time, isn't that just isn't the opposite? Can we say that about them? Well, they just lucked out. 
because he will mess up and, and skips on these guys. Like Roy Hibbert. It's a lot easier to draft Roy Hibbert 17th than it is 7th. Because you don't remember Roy Hibbert was really not in great shape in college, didn't move well, didn't have a good body. And even now, today, you can still say, I don't think he can play with every team. What he does works for Indiana because they play a style that is tailor-made to him. But you can, I don't know if you, know, you can put him on, you know, if you traded him for Dwight Howard, you think Houston would be incredible? Not really, because that's not, that's not the style of basketball they play. But I didn't want to get off on the tangent there. I just thought it was funny. You know, you look at it and you go, oh, wow, you really you got a great eye for talent. Or you realize that there's someone so obviously good that drops to where you have no risk at all in taking them uh, at your draft spot. Yeah, and I think I think those both fit in well. And I th- there's also you have the hindsight bias, but I think you can look at where a guy was considered at the time. And so for me, I was thinking, you know, with Monroe, the Warriors took Ekpe Udo over him, which was just a bad decision. And that was one of those. But then you get into those situations where a guy falls because of more legitimate things, and you get into the the really interesting ones, which are ones like Akeem Olajuwon and Michael Jordan. In that draft, you know that you could justify that a lot of different ways, considering. Drexler and everything else but there and I think it can be both in certain circumstances though I think you do raise an excellent point yeah no, I'm, and I was just thinking about an example of one of those oh Trey Jones III you know you look at him and people say oh it's Preston so the kid was supposed to be a top five draft pick how hard is it to draft him at 29 yeah it was it was it was hard it was hard for all the other teams ex- except that they all passed on him that was uh, I covered that draft that was a really interesting experience the other thing also is it always depends on where you are as a team. You know, if you're Oklahoma City, you can afford to take a chance on a guy like that because you already got two studs who are not even scratching the surface of their prime. So you got plenty of time to worry about it. Really, at the time, uh, they actually had three studs. They had hard technically, so, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's the way it goes. So we'll do a quick transition within the theme of improving the league. Do you have any ways that you would change the playoff system from what it is now? Again, radical solution, let's get rid of conferences and let's just do one through 16. When you look at the league making the decision to switch the final format from 2-3-2 back to 2-2-1-1-1, we basically admitted what everyone's already known. Like travel is terrific nowadays. Accommodations are terrific. The need for staying in one city that long is not a big deal, even even though you're coming from across the country. So once we've accepted that, why don't we just expand it to our entire playoff system? The best 16 teams should go. The worst 14 teams should stay at home. And it shouldn't get stuck on Eastern Conference, Western Conference. But again, that is a very radical solution. And there's a very valid counterpoint to that, which is if we keep the conferences for regular season play, then that's not fair because a team like, for instance, Indiana benefits by beating up on a lot of poor competition and having an inflated record, whereas a team like, let's say, Houston really has to fight and fall in the Western Conference. Now you go to the playoffs, and Indiana is seated higher in the playoffs than Houston is because he had a good time. Now, I don't know off the top of my head Indiana's record against the Western Conference, Houston's record against the Eastern Conference. I'm just using them as two examples to illustrate uh, one of the issues that you could have. So knowing that that's maybe too radical, so the other less radical solution, I think that's a very simple fix, is if we go to the B-League style of playoff seeding. So if you don't know, in the B-League, they seed the top four teams, and then the top seed gets to pick who among the bottom four seeded teams 
they're going to play. So instead of doing the traditional one plays, plays eight, two plays seven, et cetera, et cetera, the one seed can actually say, you know what, I really think we match up better with the six seed, so we're going to pick them to play in the opening round. And then the two gets the next priority, next level priority, and gets to pick up the remainder, and so on and so forth. First of all, you get it. it's an interesting dynamic when you, when you think of that bold statement. It's like, yeah, I really think I can kick your tail, uh, even though you're not the worst team that made the playoffs. The other thing is it eliminates the second kind of tanking that we really don't talk about, which is teams that lose games on purpose to angle themselves into specific playoff matchups. It used to happen a lot, and it still happens. The most recent example is the Memphis Grizzlies in 2011, was it? When they wanted to play a Spurs team that they matched up well against and featured, and had a lot of injuries. I think Mono was injured that year. You get rid of that. So there's no incentive to lose games. The only incentive, as far as angling, is for those top teams to win games because they want to get to a higher seed and be able to have the, uh, the top priority of picking their opponents. I'm a huge supporter of that and actually proposed something similar when we did that episode. It's such a fair solution. The other thing that you you touched on this, but I think it's a bigger point, is that it also gives a fairness advantage to the teams that do best. And what I think of is I think of that Washington Wizards team with Arenas and Jameson, where they both got hurt right before the playoffs. And so I think it was the Cavs were the three seed. It was somebody was the three seed and benefited immensely from that team losing and I think to me if somebody's going to benefit from that it should be the team at the top because then you get that benefit from winning it shouldn't just be dumb luck right absolutely absolutely yes the, the one seed should have been able to say I want those the guys that are in clutches as opposed to having to play someone else this is something I've, I've asked a lot of different people when we're putting stuff together would you allow, in if, if a team wanted to do this, and you've worked with a team, so you know how crazy this would be, would you allow teams to decline playoff berths if they wanted to? So I'd rather be in the lottery than be in the playoffs? Yeah. Sure, why not? I, I'd allow them. I don't know if any team would actually do that, though. Because Unless, of the increases in revenue. Yeah, because of the increases in revenue, because it makes a fairly large statement. And there's one thing to stack the deck so that, you know, you're not going to win as many games as possible. It's another thing to outright just go ahead and say, no, no, I'm not going to try my slim chance of winning a championship. Let me try, let me try and get a, a draft. I mean, it just sends an awful message to your fan base, your players, because you got to remember, players get playoff bonuses for making the playoffs, for winning games, for winning series. So if you're a player and you say, oh, we, we could have gone and made me some extra cash, but management thought it was better that we try to, again, try to get a pick so they can get my replacement. I just think that's an awful, awful message in the locker room, and it really doesn't, doesn't help you in your team building unless you know that everybody here is going to be gone next year anyway. Maybe it makes me an evil person, but I just want to put the option on the table just to see if it would ever happen. Yeah, I don't think it would happen, to be honest. I think that's one where it wouldn't happen. If it, if it would happen, it'd be for a team like Philadelphia this year. But they're nowhere near close to making the playoffs anyway. So, again, that's not an issue. And if you look at the teams that are in the playoffs right now, in the playoff picture, in either conference, by the way, I don't know if any of them would forfeit a berth. 
Yeah. I think the best argument you brought up the great point with the players and all of that is also that the financial component, because as I understand it, and I'm sure you're closer to this than I am, is that where a lot of teams make their money, where they, if they're going to hope to turn a profit, actually comes from the playoffs. So to willingly sacrifice that would be right. a very strange move tactically in that sense. Absolutely, yes. There's incredible playoff revenue. The inflation on the ticket prices is pretty incredible. I remember being shocked about that. Uh, we see a comp ticket, but it's a taxable bonus. And so they calculate the bonus based on how much the tickets cost at face value. So when you go to the playoffs, the team will issue, you know, even if you're a season ticket holder, you don't get your playoff tickets one at a time. You get a full book as if mm-hmm. your team hosted every single, had home court advantage every single series and went to a full game seven every series. So you have four, a book of four for every seat, for every round. So basically a book of 16 tickets for each seat. And then they, they would tax us on the full value. And it was, it was a market uh, upgrade in price from regular season prices to the playoff prices. And they increased by round. So I remember the tickets against Portland were a certain price. And then we played San Antonio around and they were higher. And it was like the Lakers and you know, high. And if they had gone to the finals, it was going to be something ridiculous. So that's a lot of money. Obviously, concessions and parking and all the other ancillary benefits that come from being in the playoffs. And you're just having extra games. Again, this goes back to people say we need to play less games. Well, what's the biggest obstacle is owners don't want to give up home games. It's revenue. Basically, economies of scale. They're making cash by having more and more of these games. I was thinking about that, actually, on point, and I was I was wanted to bounce this idea off you because my understanding is that also playoff games have the benefit because they play, players are paid differently for playoff games than they are for regular season games. And so one interesting way of doing this is that, and I believe players are comparatively paid less for playoff games than for regular season games. Correct me if I'm wrong. They, they actually changed that. They, you know, so it used to be, let's say you got suspended. It's called you would get suspended for a game. You'd lose one eighty second of your salary. And then someone came up with the idea. Well, uh, actually, I think it was Mark West. Mark West got traded. When he got traded from Cleveland to Phoenix, he actually played eighty three games. So his agent tried to argue that he needed to get paid for that 83rd game. So the league changed it to 110. So it's like now it's one game is one to 110th of pay. So technically you're getting paid during the playoffs and they reduce the value that you get paid per game. But then you're, are you, you're paying that money whether or not your team makes the playoffs then. So in that way, isn't it then just even found money in that sense? Yeah, so the pay schedule is all, all different. This is the part where I don't have my notes in front of me. But used to be pay schedule by default was twice a month through nine months. And then as a player, you could negotiate, I want my pay schedule to be year-round. I want my pay schedule to actually be over an 18-month period. Mm-hmm. So this was a big option for a lot of the guys that were the lockout, who had smart agents and knew they had players who weren't very good at managing their money, so couldn't basically could not survive a lockout. They negotiated pay schedules like that so that technically, so, you know, 2011-2012 season is the lockout season. They're not getting paid for 2011-2012, but the team was still having to pay for 10-11 because the pay schedule was still going. Now they changed those rules, and they made the default something different. Again, I wish I had – I'm in a car right now, so I wish I I could uh, look up my, my notes and tell exactly how it goes. 
Yeah, and but I think the interesting component of all of it would be that it might be possible to make that the best argument for reducing the duration of the regular season would be that it would shift that component from playoffs to that. And in a league where more than half the teams make the playoffs, I think that is would be more receptive. And I, I think pretty much everybody agrees now that in the overall good of the game, it would be better for the season to be shorter. Yeah, except one of the good of the game parts is, again, TV revenue, the gate, and the, uh, the ancillary revenue streams of concessions and parking and merchandise and all that. All those, basically, we're, we're losing home days. And, and the other thing is a lot of those teams uh, either own or operate the arenas they play in, so they're losing programming, right? So now you have more dark days. And you got to ask yourself, are there enough concerts, are there enough rodeos and other events out there to fill those dark days? not only to fill them, but also will bring you more revenue than having another NBA game. That's the part where financially for the owners, they're under no duress to do that. And then, you know, they also have history on their side where they say, well, we've always played 82 games, so why should we change? Would you favor expanding the length of the season just in terms of duration then to reduce or eliminate back-to-backs? Yes, I'm definitely in favor of that. It would think for players that play internationally representing their countries, yes, I would absolutely be more in favor of, you know, stretching out our season a little bit more so that we can get rid of back-to-backs at least. Or at least reduce them. If not, you know, part of a back-to-back isn't just because the schedule is so tight. Sometimes it is because of availability of facilities. So it doesn't always work out easily, but but yeah, if we can reduce that, that would be a great step. So let's move more on to into stuff that was on the court. Uh, you were in L.A. this weekend, and I know that you saw both professional and college games. I was wondering who stood out in either one of those this weekend. Wow. Well, yeah, I did the 24 hours of Los Angeles hoops, so I got to see SC versus UCLA on Saturday night. So Lakers and the Bulls this morning, I guess, or this afternoon, and then I, I just got out of Clippers and Sixers. So... Lots of fun to a basketball junkie. Who stood out? So I would be amiss if I didn't start with the Clippers because what they did today was just, it was abusive. Uh, they really took it to the Sixers. There was a point when they were up 89 to 33, and it was from, from the get-go, from when they came out of the gate. Chris Paul has to get the honorary game ball, I guess, because there were so many questions about how would he reassimilate back into the team after they learned they found themselves in his absence and found a way to win without him and found a way to play a style of basketball that wasn't wholly dependent on him creating out a pick and roll. And maybe it took all of 30 seconds for all of those fears and questions to be laid to rest. He fit back in seamlessly. It was a dynamite combination. Obviously playing the Sixers helps, but the ball didn't stick in his hands, and I thought that was pretty good. The early game today, fairly ugly. Uh, Joaquin Noah played extremely well. Just the same of what we're accustomed to seeing from him. Chris came and had a throwback game, but uh, I wouldn't read too much into it. As far as the college game goes, you know, it's all the usual suspects. I was very impressed with Zach Levine. Levine, I haven't figured out how to pronounce his name. Incredible shooter. Really, really good athlete. Nice frame, long, lanky, good size. Didn't get enough of him creating off the dribble because that's not really what they asked him to do. 
Kyle Anderson, very high IQ player, great vision, great anticipation of the play developing before it actually develops. Improved shooter. I think he's got to get stronger because I don't think he can be a point guard. He's got to be something else in our age. Jordan Adams, very nice off the ball wing, scoring wing. Powell also had a pretty good game. UCLA has a bunch of guys. I know it shouldn't be a revelation to anyone out there, but it's always fun to see them live as opposed to watching them all film, which is how uh, I've had to watch pretty much the whole year. When you were watching Levine, did you get the feeling of whether, obviously his body will change over time, of whether you would feel comfortable having him guard twos in the NBA? Yeah, I think he's got he's got all the athletic uh, ability to do that. He, again, he, he's got pretty good length. He's about 6'4". I stood next to him, so you know, I tried to do the eyeball test. And again, he's a plus athlete. He gets up there, so a pretty quick laterally as well. Uh, the thing that I didn't like was UCLA played a lot of zone, and you always wonder about a player's ability to, uh, you know, we see this with the Syracuse guys all the time. It's hard to analyze. I, I'm sure from a draft perspective from your from your role like with the Suns that that would, could you basically evaluate them at all on defense from, their, from the film from Syracuse? Well, the Syracuse guys are a special case because Literally, they have a, a track record of being awful every single every year, year in year out. But I will say this: when I watched Syracuse two years ago, so this is the year Dion Waiters was there. I felt that they had three guys that were really good defenders, even though they played in the Syracuse run. And that was Michael Carter Williams, even though he didn't play that much his freshman year. Brandon Frisch and uh, Dion Waiters. I thought Dion Waiters was was a good defensive player. He had good instincts. He had good hands and, and was very good at being aggressive in any kind of aggressive trapping defense. But for the most part, particularly if you play on the back line, history tells us those guys don't aren't very good at that. And even for some of the guys on the front line, for Johnny Flynn is a guy that stood out to me. He was terrible. He used to call him traffic cop. So he did with points. It happens a lot of circuits. You know, you have to you bounce on your toes and you just kind of point to where the ball is going to go, but you're not actually moving or active in the defense. Now, looking at UCLA's zone defense, same thing. I think Kyle Anderson basically uses it as an excuse to not have to conserve energy. And from, from my time hanging around coaches and sitting in their meetings, we've always talked about how zone, actually, if you play the zone correctly, it should actually be more physically taxing than a man-to-man because you always have to be constantly moving and morphing. It's supposed to be like an amoeba. And it, it slides over. If you're standing still and you're know, oh, he's not in my zone, he's not in my area, you're pretty much doing it wrong. And Kyle Anderson has a lot of that. He won't be able to hide in that way uh, on the next level. But you know, if you're drafting him, you're hoping that his offensive contributions will outweigh uh, his defensive deficiencies. And that, that's by the way, that's why he's better off being like a combo forward because he rebounds the ball really well. He's got some size, he's got some length, he's got to gain weight and strength, but then his lack of lateral quickness isn't as big of a deal as a 3-4 than as a 1-2, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Seeing Michael Carter-Williams today, do you get a sense, I keep on thinking about the idea that he could run the offense but defend twos, but he's so good at handling ones that I'm not sure it might even be worth the risk in terms of building a team. Well, I mean, it all depends. It gives you the luxury that if you had a Ben Gordon type of player, a Monte Ellis, this kind of small guy but an incredible scorer, it gives you the ability to do that, to pair him with Michael Carter-Williams 
and then having an explosive scoring backcourt and still be able to guard everybody. Whether I would actually go out and seek that kind of player, I don't know if I would, but, you know, it gives you that option if, if need be. And that's the same thing that makes people like me, also people who like Magic Johnson, which also includes me, really intrigued by Dante Exum. Because Exum is a guy who may, could potentially guard twos as well and can handle the ball. Right. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about maybe Philadelphia being a destination there. Obviously, the connection, he's Australian. Brett Brown is the head coach of the Australian national team. So seems like a very natural connection there. And then the idea is that you have two guards who can play on or off the ball and Michael Carter-Williams and Exum. Uh, it'd be a nice kind of long, lanky backcourt that you can run with. And also what would be fun about that is that you would also guarantee as long as you apportion their minutes correctly, and we've learned from Mo Cheeks that that doesn't always happen, that you could have a quality ball handler on the floor at all times. And that's something that some teams, have, su- have including the Warriors, have suffered major drop-offs with at various points in recent years. Yeah, I, it's just become a real big fad now, the whole two-point guard lineup. The Nuggets were really big on that uh, a couple of years ago. The Knicks, the Suns, obviously, probably the best example of a two-point uh, two guard backcourt. But I think you can definitely get away with, with Exum and, and Mike Carter-Williams, just knowing that you have to give Exum some time to assimilate the playing higher caliber competition than he's been accustomed to. And, you know, the rigors and the mental trial that you got to go through as a point guard in the NBA. You brought up Phoenix's backcourt, and I've been thinking the whole year they've been playing so well together, especially when both Dragic and Bledsoe have been healthy. Do you feel like that can continue as the long-term foundation of the franchise? Yes, if we take a small picture look at it, can Dragic and Bledsoe be an effective backcourt for this team? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think they have great chemistry, and they enjoy playing with one another, which is really big when, when you're talking about that kind of setup. But in the sense that in order for this team to graduate to the next echelon, they're going to need to acquire an, a kind of an elite talent. I don't know if you can hold on to both of those guys and still be able to add an elite talent. I think somewhere along the lines, either you're going to have to move one of those guys to get that elite talent, or you're going to have to let one of those guys go to free yourself financially to be able to get that elite talent. So that might be an issue there. But in terms of their, their chemistry together and a team's success, I think it's more than proven that you know, it's not a fluke they can do this and take the one game. And what's so fascinating about the Suns, beyond the fact that they're excellently coached, is that it feels like an upgrade anywhere other than point guard is possible. You know, they have guys who are playing really well and who are doing that, but if you add in a quality piece, as long as they're not ball-dominant, you get into a Waiters, a Waiters-Irving situation, adding a talent, like a, a talented small forward, a talented power forward, a talented center, would just help this team get better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I agree with that. Where do you see them fitting in the, this Western Conference that seems about 10 deep at the moment? Right about where they are, 6, six and 7, 6, 7, 8, kind of that area. They've been really solid since losing Bledsoe. Uh, this is one of the things that I think was lost along, among a lot of people that kind of credited this year's turnaround to Bledsoe. And obviously he was a great help and great asset, but I think the biggest story this year was Dragic's improvement in play. He really elevated his level of play. And the numbers bore out not only in the win-loss record, but even when you look at lineups, Suns' best lineups were Dragic and Bledsoe 
when Dragic is on the court without Bledsoe, it's still pretty good. But when Bledsoe's on the court without Dragic, it's not good at all. It's a negative. There's no reason why they can't continue to do what they've done because their best player is still alive as well. But obviously they're not very deep, and they rely heavily on playing hard every night. You know, they're, they're the type of team where they have to play hard. If they don't, you know, they can't get by on talent well. And they have that benefit that they have an excellent coach, and those players all have the urgency. And that I think that kind of even goes into the idea that an upgrade at any position would be possible, is that these guys are fighting for their NBA careers, a lot of them. And, you know, guys who haven't, who haven't gotten that big money yet in particular. Yeah, you know, it's, it's easy when you pitch it like that. It's hard, though, to get guys to stay on the same page, particularly when things go wrong. And so that's, I mean, that's the biggest thing that coaching staff has done is keep those guys all on the same page and not lose track of team goals in an effort to pursue the individual uh, pursuits. At the same time, it bears saying that the, what's made them successful is they let guys be themselves on the court. So a guy like Gerald Green, who people ask, oh, wow, you know, Hornacek has brought him out. Well, well, no, he hasn't. He's doing the same thing he did in Jersey two years ago. It's just the difference is in Indiana, they have expectations of what you need to do to be on the court, specifically defensively, knowing rotations, being disciplined, offensively, remembering plays, having good timing. Those things are important to Indiana's style of play. And if you don't play that way in Indiana, then you don't play. In Phoenix, not so much. They have a different style of play where it's more of a pressure defense that rewards activity more than precision. So him messing up rotations and stuff, not as big a deal. And again, offensively, the very laissez-faire offensive style built on dribble penetration and then guys on the perimeter teeing up or attacking against hard closeouts. And so he, all he does is go and run to the wing, and, and it's, that's a pretty easy thing for him to do. So basically, he's on a situation that plays his strength and really doesn't mind his weaknesses as much as, say, where he was in Indiana. Juxtapose yeah, that with some, someone like Miles Plumlee, who is developed, who's a better player than he was in Indiana. I was going to ask you about Plumlee in, in the terms of the Indiana-Phoenix change. And do you think that the change accelerated his cycle, or was it just maybe in a way that Indiana just gave up on him a little too soon? Well, I, I don't think they gave up on him. I think it was they wanted, you know, their, their window of opportunity is now. And we talked about a, l- a little bit earlier about Lance Stevenson deal and well, they just keep him and Granger and all those guys. So if you're the Patriots, you're looking at it. This, this has to be, you know, we have a window of, now, because we don't know how much longer David West is going to be able to give us the kind of uh, production he's doing. And we don't know whether Lance is going to be back or Granger or either. Maybe both of them will be gone. So all of this uncertainty means that you have to give up something. Even though you know it's valuable, you need something now. And that, that was what that deal was about for them. It was against Solon. Solon played tremendously well for them and did everything they hoped and dreamed for. So I don't know if they, they look at it with regret, but at the same time, Plumlee's not the player that he was last year. Like last year, he was, he was a good athlete and he could catch, but the kind of post moves that he's developed, that's all fairly new and it's still a work in progress. His perimeter shot is very much a work in progress. And then it, again, it goes back to also the offensive system. Phoenix played a system where they had not one, but two really good kick and roll guards, one of whom is comes from a culture of throwing lobs to big men all the time. 
that's really good for a player like Miles Plumlee. Not so good is watching David West post up or Paul George ISO or Lance. I mean, it's not the system in Indiana does not speak to his particular set of talents at this given moment so well. So I think there, in that case, there's a combination of I'm in a better situation, but I'm also a better player than I was last year. That makes total sense. Moving on to the trade deadline, I'm not going to give you any fake trades. I'm not going to give you any hypotheticals. Uh, But are there any teams or any situations that you find most interesting in the next two weeks? Well, Cleveland, obviously. Cleveland says they are buyers. And the problem is when you fire your GM, it automatically reduces all of your leverage in any sort of trade talk because now the perception is you're desperate. You need this more than I need it. So teams can smell that, and then they can see the low ball, and so you really don't get anything done. So that's interesting to me. The Cavs are such an interesting situation, just in terms of everything. And Ethan and I have talked about this numerous points that, I mean, I think that they should trade, well, dang, they should try to shop him now because, you know, they as you know, they could they could move him in those narrow circumstances, but they're never going to do it. Oh, yeah, they better do it. They better do it because I don't think he's coming back. They have to be able to recoup value on that because otherwise they just they made an awful deal. But, again, the problem is they're not sellers. They're the buyers, right? The, the kind of the edict has come down from Dan Gilbert. They still win. They want to win now. Even though common sense would dictate throwing the towel, they don't have that luxury. So I don't know I don't know if trading, trading in the wall would be beneficial to them. You might be the best person I could ask this question who could answer it, and that's I've said for a while now that the biggest competitive advantage in the league is injury prevention and mitigation, but then that the second biggest one is ownership. Do you think that that's about right, or would you have something else in there? The biggest competitive advantage is ownership, far and away. There is no single determinant that is more important than ownership because good owner, everything else can happen. A bad owner or a meddlesome owner, or an owner that doesn't know his boundaries, or an owner that's unstable, that gets in the way of everything else. So if you look at a team like the Clippers, they have a wonderful product, they've got a franchise point guard, they've got arguably either the best or one of the three best power forwards in the game, uh, they've got one of the best coaches in the game, all of that is undermined because they have an owner that nobody knows what he's going to do from, from moment to moment. Case in point, the J.J. Reddick deal that almost didn't happen over the summer because Donald Sterling just decided that, nah, why are we paying all this, guy, all this money for a white guy? So all of the, you know, the, the, the best laid plans of Mike, it doesn't matter if your owner is crazy. That's definitely number one. Number two, injury prevention, injury management, schedule management, all that kind of stuff that, Again, these concepts that go beyond just go out there and play basketball and actually you know, you know, it's, it's all it's the things that Phoenix does from a medical staff standpoint, the things that San Antonio does from a we're gonna sit our guys tonight, we're not gonna have morning shoot arounds and all those things. That's kind of underutilized areas. There's you know, there are still a good number of teams that are not they're not up to speed and not up to snuff when it comes to those things. So that, that's a, a tremendous source. And then the, the third is psychological profiling, accurate psychological profiling, the ability to build a team with personalities that mesh one, well with one another. As the old saying goes, you can't have too many chefs in the kitchen. 
psychological profiling and be able to accurately evaluate and assess not only your players, but also players that you're interested in acquiring, uh, usually by the draft, but also by psychological profile. That, that's that's the, the other uncharted territory that uh, I think, first of all, I would say uh, advanced, advanced analytics. So not their PR rebound percentage, adjusted plus minus stuff, but being able to use and interpret the sports new data in a meaningful way. I think what a lot of fans, I don't think they know, maybe, maybe, I, I'm assuming the people who listen to this podcast, you guys, you guys are an educated bunch. The sport view number that we get on NBA.com slash that is extremely bare bones, dumbed down, the basic, basic starter kit, Mercedes C-Class, BMW 300 series of sport view. This is the easiest stuff we could come up with and give you. And really, the teams that are experiencing an advantage are the ones that tracking things that are so way more advanced that they don't even look at those numbers. The best example, of course, is uh, or the best example that we know of, because obviously we're very uh, secretive, is the stuff that Zach Lowe wrote about, about Toronto last year, using the SportView data to generate computer simulations of what should have happened on the play versus what actually happened. The other thing that came out this week is the paper that Chris Goldsberry and a couple of other gentlemen are going to be presenting at Sloan this year about the expected value of any given play, the decision that a player makes or whatever. These are kind of the high-level, uh, what I just call advanced, advanced analysis. Teams that are on the cutting edge of that, they're going to be experiencing advantages over teams that aren't. And again, that ties back into ownership because I think you'll find most often that it's it's those proactive owners that are willing to fight for whatever they can do to get better that will put the money and the resources and also the la- creative latitude into those programs. Absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible investment. People don't understand. It's not cheap to get people who can program. It's not cheap to get people who can program and understand how basketball works because uh, it's not just writing a script. It's writing a script that actually reflects kind of what's happening. So a lot of times you get analytics people who don't understand, and they just see a correlation, and then they, they run with it. And I always use the old analogy that my forecasting professors always say is, for whatever reason, nobody knows, but there's a strong correlation between the sale of diapers and the sale of beer. <laughs> and no, nobody can explain why, it just is. So much in that same way, we can't, go off of that and say, well, we should be having Pampers and Budweiser promotion because that indicates a complete lack of understanding of what's going on and just merely taking the data and running with it. And that happens a lot, I think, in basketball. People will say that, oh, yeah, this big prospect is going to be bad. Why? Well, his skills rate is so uh, too low. You got several skills. Oh, that doesn't make sense. Well, if if he's got, you know, if he can shoot, he's skilled on the post, and he's a smart defensive player as far as positioning and rotations and execution and all those things. Still, rate becomes very irrelevant at that point. I don't care that he's not swiping balls left and right, but because there's a correlation between bigs that have been successful in our league and they all seem to have a high skill rate, a lot of analytics people that just think that he's going to run with it, much like someone trying to make the diaper. Beer cross promo. 
It's a really interesting thing with basketball, and I think it's been fun because I was somebody who is very interested in the baseball sabermetrics movement, and the difference with basketball is that basketball is a very different game. Not everything starts – it's not like baseball where, you know, every play starts with a pitcher throwing it to the catcher and the batter trying to hit it. You know, it's the beauty of basketball is the interconnectedness of players – And what's fun is, so there's this nuance that stats have trouble grasping, but the more data we get, the closer we might get to actually finding out some of the things that have been more visual and more visceral in over that time. Well, there's two things. First of all, I think the sport view that allows us to quantify things that we've seen but have never been able to quantify. There's that. But then there's also these things, and this is where, you know, we say that, Stats don't grasp the nuance. These are often the same things that even the eye and ear people don't grasp the nuance of. That's how you get Joe Nuance giving Charlie Villanueva fifty-six million or whatever. You know, that's beyond stats and beyond. I mean, that's why even even someone who's using scouting could not grasp why the guy was not not a good investor. So I you know I don't want to make it seem like I have stats because you know they they missed the boat on this. I mean, some of this stuff. Everybody misses the boat on, and you just don't know. It's a genetic of why this works and why it doesn't, and why this guy was good here and he wasn't there. I think that the, the burden for stats is to understand, or for for an analyst, because I, I I was I was the analytics guy for the Suns for for a while there. So for me, it was about making sure that I I could explain the phenomenon that what I was observing was that was one, and two understanding that what I am seeing, what the numbers are giving me are a snapshot of what is today. So if I took someone from another team and plugged them in the same situation, I mean, I get the same results that they were producing there or that they're funny to start to produce here. Similarly, what a guy does today in college doesn't necessarily dictate what he will be for the rest of his life. So I had a guy today tweet me and said, you know, he tweeted me a link from like 2007 well, we basically one of our scouts talking about Dragic. You're scouting Dragic or not, you know, without actually naming him by name because he can't as a draft eligible player. And so, you know, scout's name is Todd Quinter. He was a director of player personnel. I believe he's the director of pro personnel now for the Charlotte Bobcats. The guy basically who tweeted me this link to this old article was like, yeah, and, you know, you guys recommended making this acquisition despite his poor three-point percentage of free-throw percentage. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's not hard. The kid was 20 years old at the time. We really didn't give a damn about his – because it's like he's not going to be that way forever unless he's got, like, a really messed-up shot like Michael kidd Gilchrist. But he didn't have that. He had an okay-looking stroke. Really what it was is he was a superior athlete in, in Europe, and we didn't have to shoot. You could get to the rim any time you wanted. But there were enough positives there – and we knew he was going to be a really good player, particularly the intangibles, the stuff with, you know, leadership and being vocal and, and stuff like that, playing with an intensity and the passion and all that. Those were the things that made us want to draft him. The fact that his free throw percentage wasn't that great or his free throw percentage, it almost comes irrelevant at that point. But from a statistical standpoint, they go, oh, this is a big deal. How can you have a, a you know, point guard and the three-point percentage is, is so poor? But that's only assuming that he's going to be that same player forever. And for a lot of the guys, they aren't. And that uncertainty and that nuance is also one of the huge benefits of having an ego that, like, as a general manager and owner, however you want to see it, that you can have lots of voices and listen to it and understand that nobody's going to be right all the time and nobody has the entire answer. 
yeah, well, ultimately, that's the job for the general manager, right? So, myself, Ty Quinner, John Shoemate, who was our, our head scout, we all gave our professional opinions based on our, our background of expertise. And, we, you know, all, all the prospects we talked about, we argued every day about back and forth. But ultimately, the burden falls upon the decision maker to take this information and decide what he feels is most relevant and what isn't and, and move on from there. And I, I always thought that was my job. My job isn't to tell you who to take. My job is to give you all the information I have available to me so that you can make the decision on who to take. And whatever, as long as I've given you the information, I will roll with your decision. The thing that I could not accept is the feeling or being made to feel like my giving you information that runs contrary to your opinion or what your desires are is a bad thing. I'm not supposed to give you that information. Don't tell me that. That I don't understand because you're paying me to tell you that. You want to be able to say, knowing everything that I knew on the table, this is the decision I made. It was an educated decision. Was it right? Maybe it wasn't. But at least you knew. And you can't say that. Why didn't you tell me that he's an axe murderer or he's addicted to cocaine? Or I never wanted that. I never wanted that. Why didn't you tell me conversation to happen? And that's also why you have multiple eyes looking at it and then having people look at it from different perspectives is that you're going to hopefully get that from someone, you know, hopefully you'll, hopefully somebody will have the ax murderer thing, but everybody doesn't need that. And you don't want everybody coming at it from the same angle because then you're not getting the diverse picture and the disparate impacts are really important because inputs, because that's how you might find the incongruities that could lead you to either find the right guy or not find or not pick the wrong guy. Absolutely. And and then also, it also again, it, it, and that's the part of chemistry in an organization that's really understated. Is that there's a chemistry that happens in the front office as well. And that's born out of trust and born out of respect. That goes a long way as well. I mean, I, I, I can't count how many, you know, my last couple of years with the Suns, how many things I had my hand in either pushing for or pushing against that ultimately ended up being really good decisions for the organization. Or, they didn't listen to me. were really bad decisions. And I'm not trying to paint myself as some sort of basketball savant, but those are the kind of things that if you respect the opinion of someone like myself, it goes a long way. And if you don't, you end up in trouble. You, know, you end up kind of trading an all-star caliber point guard for one who isn't and giving up a first-round pick to boot. <laughs> are there any players, we'll, we'll start with the draft, but we can open it up if there are any NBA guys you think of it, that you feel are being underappreciated or that you feel like you feel more strongly in a positive way on them than you feel like the general consensus is? In the draft, I think Doug McDermott is a guy like that. I think Kyle Anderson, because he's so unorthodox, all unorthodox guys. It really takes seeing them in a specific light. And I'm not saying that these guys are going to be short-fired successes wherever they go. Quite the contrary. I think it's going to take a very specific set of circumstances for these individuals to be successful. But I think if you do get them in those circumstances, it can be incredibly successful. And I think those two guys come to mind immediately. Now, I would say Anthony Bennett is one of those guys. He is not a guy that you can drop on any team. He'll be in trouble anyway. Obviously, he has some burden to bear as far as getting himself in shape and working on his skill level, but at the same time, I can see him being very successful if you put him in a situation where he can be successful. And I think that might be an undervalued asset, right? And maybe a guy that you can buy low right now, or maybe not because they invested a first-round pick and they're going to exhaust 
every possible, or, or I assume they're going to exhaust every possible opportunity for moving him. But I think, you know, he's, he's a guy that comes to mind when they, oh, he could be so much. Like, Feudo is a guy like that. I think he's a guy that's been misused for much of his career. He can, he can be a lot more than what he is. Yeah, and a lot of it is just finding the right place for a player. And when you see a guy, I was high comparatively, at least it felt like, with people on Anthony Bennett, and I haven't seen too much other the the conditioning stuff concerns me a little bit. But he's still the talented guy that I thought could be a legit NBA player. His ceiling hasn't changed. It's just that he's playing closer to his floor right now because the team that drafted him isn't using him right. They're not using the right of the, the added curse of being the first overall pick. And this is another point where we don't make enough. And if you remember going into this, we weren't sold on anybody as the number one overall pick. Maybe, we, you know, you could say, that, oh, I like all the people better than anybody else in that. Okay, how would you compare all the people to every other number one overall pick in the last decade, save for Andrea Bargnani and Kwame Brown? Since basically since 2001. Yeah, and the, go and the ahead. And even those guys, Bargnani and Kwame Brown, were at least projected, in, projected to be transformative players. Kwame Brown was like, okay, this kid's 17 years old, 18 years old, coming out of high school, he's got the body of a Greek god, he's seven foot, he's athletic, runs the floor like a deer. This guy's going to be incredible. Bargnani, oh, he's seven foot, he shoots the, the, the living daylight out of the ball, he moves like a guard, he can pass. He's, he's like a mini dirt kind of guy. That's those are the expectations. And then those guys didn't meet those expectations. But this draft, specifically, we were all like, yeah, he could be okay. You mean all-star? Maybe a woman. All-star. That's what we were thinking about all of these players. So to come back now and like, I can't believe Anthony's better than the ball. He's awful. Well, time out. There's not any of these guys that are really setting our world on fire. And even Michael Carter-Williams, he's had a great rookie year. Again, is he better than Derrick Rose? or Blake Griffin, or John Wall, or, or Dwight Howard, or LeBron. He's like, no. Like, oh, no, when you put it like that, no, it's nowhere near that. Well, that's, that's the job that we're dealing with. And so it's unfair. Some of the criticism that Bennett gets is unfair because it has nothing to do with him so much as it's him plus being the number one overall pick. There's an expectation that he should have been changing this franchise. I mean, he was nowhere near that, but no one, no one else was either. And Bennett's a really interesting case of an argument that I've made for years, which is that if you don't have a surefire hit, you know, the type of guys that we've been talking about, one of the more logical strategies is to go with the guy who has the highest ceiling. Because if there are very few guys who are going to hit, you might as well swing for the fences. And you could argue about who that guy is, but I think that Oladipo probably was not that guy. Because as with the way that his offensive game worked and everything else, he could end up being a very good player, but... I would say the chances of him being a perennial all-star are relatively low. There's a chance that Anthony Bennett, if you want to say that, Michael Carter-Williams, Nerlens Noel, you know, those type of guys, I would be more interested in the high-variance guys when you don't right. have sure bets. And Bennett made sense in that logic. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, that's what uh, Daryl Moore was talking about the other day. Would you, uh, in this, I know that the situation, I think, is becoming overblown and all of that. What do you think of Marcus Smart right now, just purely as a draft prospect? He's one of the guys that has a real question. Here's my thing about Marcus Smart. First of all, he's never played point guard until he got to college. He's a great character guy, great leader, you know, as far as kind of directing guys, he's got kind of all that stuff. But he's never played point guard. It's 
concept that I have to create brothers and run an offense and make sure everyone's getting their touches and everyone's happy. He's never done that. He's still learning how to do that. And he's not particularly quick. He's not particularly bouncy. And he can't shoot. So really all of his offensive game is revolved around, I'm just bigger and stronger than you, which works in high school, works in college, but oftentimes it doesn't work in the pros. you got to have something else to it. And I don't know if he has that something else to it. And that's what concerns me as a prospect. But great work ethic and great intangibles, people tend to believe in, in people like that. So he's the kind of guy that he was kind of tailor-made for 2013 draft. And yeah, that's an all right draft. Yeah, you could be a, you know, a top five pick or whatever. And because everyone, there's nobody else who's similarly standing out. And you could say at the very worst, this is the guy that can help set the culture for my organization. Whereas this year, there are some very real talents. No, I'm not going to take him over Aaron Gordon. No, I'm not going to take him over Embiid or Parker or Edsum or any of it. So those guys, are, those guys are actual talents. Are you really these are guys that can change the culture and, by the way, you know, help you win games probably even right away. Marcus is also a guy who, I was thinking about this, who would benefit a lot from your change to the draft system, that going to the right place for yeah. him would be really important. And being able to sit in a room with every team and have them say, this is how we see you fitting in, yeah. and have yeah. Marcus and his agent go, that's what makes sense for me, would be such a huge benefit as opposed to, just this kind of shot in the dark of a team. And especially with him, I would be really concerned if he goes too high. Because if he goes too high, that's probably a team that sees that he's a winner and, you know, sees all that kind of stuff. And he kind of gets Johnny Flynn into a bad situation. Absolutely. I've been absolutely fascinated by Embiid. I think that but he has this. But do you see his defensive potential as being really high? I've been really concerned with that in some ways. Here's the thing about him that makes him so difficult to evaluate is he learns so rapidly. You wonder what's going to happen when you bring them somewhere where they're actually teaching them some you know, useful things, you know, if he gets to, gets to the league. So can you learn a defensive mentality? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe if he goes to the right place. So, But to me, that part is definitely not there, that, that ownership of the defensive end in the way that, Guys like Russell and Patrick Ewing and uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, they all had this idea of almost like a goalkeeper's mentality. This is my house. This is my paint. That rim is mine. You're not getting anything by here. I don't know if he has it. His is kind of a textbook, kind of like, okay, I'm going to go test the shot, block the shot, rebound, get out. You know, It's just another action on the court as opposed to a mentality that permeates the atmosphere. Like he's learned everything else in the span of two years. And so there's no reason to believe, I guess there's no reason to believe he can learn that as well. His timeline is beyond incredible. You know, I remember the first time I was hearing him interviewed about when he picked up the game and everything, I thought he misspoke. I was thinking, you know, when he was saying, he's like, oh, I picked up the game. I think at that point it was like two years before was an interview I think he did with Draft Express or something. And it was just, it just seems impossible with him, but it's incredible. I don't know of any other player in history who's improved as quickly as he has. I've been trying to think of one for a long time, and I just don't know. I don't know. Well, and you think about, to me, the guy that I, I've been thinking about because he's frustrated me for so many years is the difference between the way that he's picked up the game and Dwight Howard. That Dwight obviously does a lot of stuff great. He's a, he's a really talented player. He's probably the best overall center in the league. But if he picked up offense in the same way at a young age that Embiid has, think about what he would be now. 
Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about Dwight is I've always felt that he's got – his problem is he's not a good finisher. That, that's his problem. If you watch him, he's got really good footwork. You know, people are like, oh, you're the most passionate doing it. Keep on, I don't need you to have to learn anything. It's quite the opposite. He's got really good footwork. He's got all types of moves and counters and spins and, and drop steps and rocker steps. And he's got all that. And the problem is, if it's not a dunk, if it's any shot that requires cut, he's terrible at that. But because so because he misses what are some so he's the, right now like his thing is the million dollar move and the ten cent finish. But because of the ten cent finish, it makes it look like oh he's, he's just he doesn't learn offense. Well, he's really good offensively actually. Same thing like he, he's become a really good passer over the years, but he's just not good at finishing those plays. As opposed to again, indeed, who can finish with either hand like he's been doing it since he was like five years old. So who knows. Yeah, I think that's a really good point on Dwight, and I, I I conflate those two things too much, and it's definitely definitely good to differentiate it. I think I thought for a while that it'd be really interesting, but the problem is that he's not a good free throw shooter, at least not a great one. About adding some of kind of the herky jerkiness of that Harden actually has to keep defenders a little bit uneasy, because with Dwight, I think he has all the moves, but I think he needs to mix it up a little bit just to keep defenders off balance. You know, it's just, it's hard to ask a big guy to move like that. I mean, it's hard yeah. to ask guards to move. I mean, the way a hard moves is not easy for most guards, let alone a, a, a big guy. I thought, I mean, you always had a terrific year in Houston, and it's kind of funny how no one's really noticing. That year in L.A. really left a poor taste in everybody's mouth. I think that Houston, once people really see them and once they get into the playoffs, they're going to be such a tough out for almost anybody because of the way that they play. They're going to be, I think if you were to ask all of the teams in the Western Conference who they would want to play the least, excluding, you know, Oklahoma City when they're rolling in the Spurs in those moments, I think Houston's going to be high on those lists because they're just such a hard team to stop. And when you talk about high variance, when they're rolling, they're just brutal. Yeah, they they got something special, uh, definitely, with their group. And they really haven't had their full complement for that long. Everyone's kind of been in and out of the lineup. So, maybe get healthy in the playoffs. It's definitely a tough, tough out. But then everybody in the West is a tough out. The Warriors are going to go into a tough out. Suns are a tough out. You know, the, you know, the Clippers are a tough out. So, it's, it's almost impossible to say. And, it's, it's your, and, it, and I think that's, that's one of the great stories of our league that we, we should probably be talking about more how great the parity is. There's any number of teams, you know, you know, this is the first time probably since 2000 and, man, it's been a while since we very literally don't know who's going to win the championship. Yeah, it's, and it's not a narrow field of teams. And what I'm really excited about also is that there are kind of different types of parity. There's parity where, you know, the teams are just all about equal, but they're not that interesting or things like that. But the Western Conference in particular, there's a lot of parity, but the teams are all incredibly engaging and interesting and exciting. And that's, to me, the type of parity that's really exciting in the league, as opposed to everybody's about the same, but everybody's and eh, like what happens in the NFL sometimes. Right, exactly. And the other thing that adds to this entertainment, right, is the rock. Bill Simmons said this today. I thought it was a pretty nice little point. The rock, paper, scissors nature of the parody. So, I can beat you, but you can beat him, but he can beat me. But he can't beat you, and I can't beat you. Know, so it's, it's kind of nice 
it makes the matchups that much more uh, intriguing because knowing that it's not kind of like the usual, like, I beat you and you beat him, therefore I must be better than him. It's none of that. And the only sad part about that is I wish that the system allowed for more than the eight teams in the Western Conference to make it because it'd be a lot more fun to have a couple more of those teams than to have whatever the five through eight are going to be in the East. Well, I mean, I guess the silver lining is we get to see a team like Minnesota have to try because even though not trying would mean keeping their pick, they have to make the playoffs to prove to Kevin Love that, you know, they're capable of putting a winner around. Same thing, you know, Memphis. They see themselves as a playoff team. They're not going to put in a tank because they got to prove to Gasol that, you know, they're, I know he's not trying to get out of there, but still, you know, I don't know if he could pick that thing. Like, hey, man, we're going to take the L on this season and we'll be like next year. Yeah, I, and love is such a tough situation because there seem to be all these inclinations that there, there could be another place. But at the same point, it's hard to imagine a situation where Minnesota gets a fair return for him. So you, you're kind of playing both sides of it, and not to get into hypothetical trades, but you know I think that it'd be so much fun to see Love on this Clippers team as great as Blake has been. Uh, to me, I think the Warriors are the ones that would really make a lot of sense. He'd help them space the court some more. Ethan Strauss talked about this a lot, how the Warriors have a reputation for being three-point shooters everywhere, but they really don't have that many knock-down three-point The Clippers probably have more than they do. Mm-hmm. So... I think he'd be a really nice fit there. Seeing any team that really gets up and down and spreads the court would be a great fit. For the Clippers, he'd be a great fit. But, man, I mean, it's hard to see what Blake is doing. It's hard to give up on that because he, he does so much. Um, and he's shown that, at least, you know, I think in the last couple month or so, he's shown that you can build a team around him that not necessarily – involves Chris Paul, you know, not not saying they don't need Chris Paul, but as Chris Paul gets older, he's going to get have more injuries, have this more time off. It's nice to know that you got a guy like Blake who can, who can carry the load. He's shown so much in the in terms of playmaking and creating and everything during this time. It, it's been really nice to see because there's a depth to his game that was underappreciated or even maybe just not underappreciated, but hard to see when Chris was on the floor. And to be able to see that there's so much more to him has been really, I would say, reassuring. Yes, absolutely. But I will say also, he's gotten better as a player. He's gotten yeah. better in that. A lot of times when he used to post up, everything was very robotic and pre-programmed. When he get the ball, he'd hold it. You know, the ball stuck to his hand. And now everything is a rapid decision. It's like the game has slowed down for him. And so he's able to make quicker decisions. And just go and just do whatever he wants to kind of on instinct. And that's made him such such, such a, a tremendous player now. And that's what's great about the league right now is you have these amazing talents and just being able to see what they can do. And I, I drag it, you know, what he's done and how he's grown his game. Or You can go in a lot of different directions. It's been so much fun to watch Orlando in the last couple of weeks. They've been just fabulous in terms of what they what they're doing and the fact that they're going to be adding at least one more high-end player is really exciting as well so well thank you so much for taking the time it was a pleasure having you on hey thanks for getting me to almost the arizona border here should be about another two hours for before i get back home but nice to kill that good chunk of time there
Thank you again to Amin Elisan for coming on. He's an NBA analyst for ESPN Insider, so you can read him there and on broaderespn.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Amin ESPN. That's A-M-I-N-E-S-P-N. I'd also like to thank Adam Francis of Raptors HQ for coming on. Really appreciate him taking the time. And very excited that next week will be a special trade deadline episode. And I was running into the problem because this comes out on Thursdays of how to handle the trade deadline because my entire podcast would basically be nullified to a point by releasing something that had to be recorded before then. So made the decision to do one that will record entirely after the deadline but come out the day after. So it'll be a Friday morning thing next week. Really excited. Should have a great stable of people. A lot of it is depending on who actually makes trades because I don't want to have on somebody from a team that stays silent in most circumstances if I can get somebody of a team that actually made a big move. And there will be general people as well. And really, really, really excited about it. So that's next week. Happy you listened this week. Really appreciate it. You can always email or tweet me any insights you have. My email is daniel.larue at realgm.com. And my Twitter handle is at Danny LaRue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy. Without all the extra drama. I even had a gift for